So I said to myself, you, you don't know how to paint. What are you talking about? I said to myself, I'll find a way. It seems like an interesting thing <laughs> to do. <laughs> I said, well, the only thing, I got to cheat. I said, I've got to trace, I've got to copy, I've got to cut out, and I'm going to do it because at least I can get my idea out on a mm. canvas somehow. The idea that people would call it copy when they know absolutely nothing about copy. How can you say it's copy if you don't know anything about copy? Because one of the dynamics of copy is that it has to have interior resemblance. And this is one of the factors of repetition. Hi, and welcome to Articulated. I'm Ryan Evans, and I work as a lead archivist here at the Archives of American Art. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. After World War II, the United States saw massive economic and artistic growth. In a new age of mass consumption and ubiquitous media, the pop art movement emerged through the stylized lexicons of mass production and popular appeal. Marked by wit and magnified by glamour, pop art also opened a channel for critique as the globe experienced social and political upheavals. In this episode, we'll hear from two trailblazing artists who came into their own through pop art, Rosalind Drexler and Sturdivant. Born in the Bronx in 1926, Rosalind Drexler has tussled a career through professional wrestling, painting, and writing. As new waves of pop culture flourished in the 1950s and 60s, Drexler made a name for herself through paintings that vivified and dissected social norms. Her method was to collage found images from magazines and newspapers and transform them on canvas with bold colors and stark compositions. She describes her artistic foundations in her 2017 oral history with Christopher Lyon. When I was a kid, my father took me to a museum, and the thing that appealed to me most was a Chardin peach. And it was so beautiful and so fuzzy and so juicy and so perfect uh, that, you know, I, I did fall in love with the painting, what is it? And the other thing that moved me into painting was the newspaper used to have a special on uh, prints, uh, 25 cents a print that their readers could get. And my mother bought me a, a Turner seascape mm. that also, I said, this seascape, it's misty and it's mysterious and look at all the ships. They're not moving, but there's the weather and stuff. And so that was another piece of art that I saw, the Turner. And my mother also, they had uh, for about 25 cents or 50 cents books. So she got me a Dickens. I'm not sure which one. This may be something to chuzzle with. <laughs> because I didn't think I had anything to lose. See, I wasn't in anybody's loop with the art. I didn't go to Yale, uh, Black Mountain College, Provincetown <laughs> with, with uh, Hans Huffman. I, you know, and all these people learned how to speak about what they were doing or what other people were doing or what they should be doing. And they're always like working uh, under the aegis of some pundit that like say Hans Huffman would I can't imagine letting anyone come up to your work and, and, and paint over it, or slash it. 
That's no way of teaching. Push, pull. Push what? I'll push you. You pull me, I'll push you. The whole thing. And so it's ridiculous in a way. It's not like, say, we are had a circle uh, and they all respected each other's work and it was more or less different, but what they said mattered. You know, if you do a color, make sure it's a full color. If you want to do blue, do blue. You want to do red. I mean, this is what they were saying even in, you know, right? Mm -hmm. uh, be out there. Of course, uh, Vuillard, uh, his, his early intimate work, I, I really love. And yeah. he got a little freer and more comfortable with the later work, which was different, yeah. more open. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I, I do like his air, airless rooms and mm -hmm. family, his mother sitting there in the bedroom, but mm -hmm. it's beautifully painted, and his sister leaning against the side of the uh, room, mm -hmm. and it was so intimate, and it was so still, and uh, I often wondered, uh, he never got married, he lived with his mother, mm. so did Enzor, I think. Pretty much. Sculpture, I, 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 when, when the gallery closed, then I wasn't doing that anymore. And I didn't know that, that, that women were not bankable, and that's part of the reason I couldn't find a gallery. I said, oh, it's because I'm doing this sculpture. Nobody wants it. I'm going to be a painter. They'll want me as a painter. I said, you know, it's so childish. So maybe that's a good thing. Mm. It's like trying to figure it out, but there are no answers, oh. as, as a kid would do. Yeah. So I, I, said, I said to myself, hey, hey you, you, don't, you, you don't know how to paint. What are you talking about? I said to myself, I'll find a way. It seems like an interesting thing <laughs> to do. <laughs> and so then um, I said, well, the only thing, I got to cheat. I said, I've got to trace, I've got to copy, I've got to cut out, and I'm going to do it because at least I can get my idea out on a mm. canvas somehow. I got some movie posters. I cut things out of magazines. and Is that because the figures in the movie poster would already be of a certain scale? Possibly, or, or I saw it where I would place it on a canvas and, and, and what kind of a meaning this image would have. Mm. Did, did you also have, have images statted up to, to, to increase the size? I mean, just to... to... Oh, yeah, sure, mm. sure, sure. Mm. I did repeats, I did shrinkage, I did expandage, the whole, <laughs> whatever I had to do in order to, in order to play with it. The, the, the backgrounds of these are so fascinating. The... Um... Let me see if there was one that caught my... Well, here's, here's the Chubby Checker one yeah, as an example. Yeah, look, I had a success with that. And that, um, the, see, there's the, the original. They mm -hmm. found that, which I feel they revealed my, you know. <laughs> yeah, now well. I'm really going to be punished. Little did I know it would become a whole thing called appro appropriation. Yeah, you said it. Yeah. You said it. Yeah, exactly. But I needed to appropriate. I wasn't doing it for any... Mm. Yeah, so... So you see, uh, I used all of these things, and, and somehow I made it into a, it's a beautiful big painting. I mean, uh, it was hanging in, in the Brooklyn Museum of Art in some show, and when you first get off the elevator, I saw it, and it was, it was sparkling. That's it was great. lively. So I was happy with that. But, but this, this idea of, yeah, that's Marilyn pursued by. That's, this uh, is terrific. That's really. Thank you. Yeah. The, uh, the Whitney has that. Yeah. 
Uh, th they had something from early, early on when the Whitney was the old Whitney mm. uh, called uh, Day at the Races, big, beautiful painting. One of the things that, I, I mean, you can't help but be struck by is the paneling of the these. Yes, other um, people are in the same story, but not at the same time. On the one hand, it reminds you a little bit of, um, you know, those predella panels at the base of, uh, of uh, Renaissance altarpieces where yeah. they'll have the big picture and then these little ones that tell you the story of how the saint got there. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so, yeah, 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 sure. Except you're not dealing with saints here, are you? You're dealing uh, with uh, I, I won't, sinners maybe a little uh, bit more. I think sinners are saints occasionally. Yeah? Yeah. So the, the notion of these uh, monochrome uh, backgrounds, uh, did that... I wanted to... Find the image in a warm cloak of artistry, <laughs> paint, <laughs> so that, you know, the whole thing is, uh, I captured uh, the image and then I sort of embalmed the image, like I captured it uh, like to that. be there for all time and oh, action. Oh, like a film? Fil it's all a film thing. This would be a film, a medium shot, then here's the action, uh -huh. and then here's what's causing the action is this this aggressive right. uh, criminal. It's a story, a story uh, uh, played for me. Uh -huh. And nothing to do with um, artistic decision, nothing to do with Bonnie so, Newman. Not driven by art history, but by... By, just, by you're, ordinary... You're narrative, uh, yes, telling a story. It's an ordinary visually. thing. If I were, uh, maybe if I did it again, I would put sprockets so people wouldn't make that mistake. Drexler was attuned to the effect of celebrity and the fixation on specific women and their images in mass media. Marilyn Monroe, a symbol of excess and allure for pop artists like Andy Warhol, Roy Lichtenstein, and Tom Wesselman, finds a more human form in Drexler's 1963 painting, Marilyn Pursued by Death, where the cultural obsession is embodied as a sinister stalker rather than a devoted fan. I do. Yes, 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 Marilyn yes. Pursued by Death. It impressed me that that she always had that fear in her, mm. you know, and she lost her mother and she was, I don't know, brought up by who, but she was always afraid of uh, something was going to get her and all this baby stuff and wanting to better herself and going to the actor's studio, that, that was a whole important endeavor in her life that didn't quite take. I mean, yeah. this Arthur Miller thing, there was the intellectual in her life, great. Then, then uh, Joe, DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio, yeah. Then there was the athletic thing in her life. And I mean, it was like, and then she had all the political guys. The, Jack, the two Kennedys. Jack Kennedy, yeah, yeah. No, Jack and, and his brother and, and Bobby. Robert. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. But all the time, this was uh, denigrating to her, actually, but she couldn't stop it because that was her calling card. I don't know, why are we, oh, are we talking about my painting? So I always have this feeling that. So when this event happened at that uh, Miller's property and she was running away, I thought it was a someone died, you know, in an accident on, on the ground or something. And then this must have been her bodyguard trying mm -hmm. to catch her 
mm, from, mm. from, you know, she was running away screaming. So, but I changed it to, uh, you know, Marilyn pursued by death. And uh, so. Very effective. It took me a while to, to, to paint that picture. I don't know why. Uh, harder for me to paint that picture. But I got it done. <laughs> And put it this way, a 1963 painting currently on view in an eponymous show at the Hirshhorn Museum, Drexler captures the moment just after a man has seemingly struck a woman against a saturated royal blue background. In the follow-through of this slap, the man is positioned in the center of the canvas, with the woman below him and her face and hair flung out dramatically to provide the audience a full view of her neck and decolletage. The man is in an athletic stance, with his shoulders set and his hands splayed. Surrounded by blue, the two figures are painted in gray shades, except for a pop of turquoise down the man's tie and the sumptuous golden yellow of the woman's dress. Drexler offers an emblematic moment from a sequence, like a raw still frame from a film, as she unravels the glamorization of violence against women in pop culture and the glorification of chauvinism. She talks about that painting as well as the communal draw to fights and how she approached their depiction. So this poster, this oh, is this yeah. is a little more sophisticated. Yeah, the poster yeah. for Toys in the Attic mm-hmm. with uh, Dean Martin smacking Geraldine Page around or something. A lot of fun that was. Oh, uh, God. And then you made a painting I, of that. Yes. It was a really effective picture. I wonder if you talk I, about that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I don't think you'll see that, that subject played out in art before or after, I don't know, even the that you actually see it happening. It's, it's, a, it's almost like an action painting. Mm-hmm. You see, she's, she's taking it and he's just delivered the blow. It's, it's a kind of violence. Uh, it is violence. And uh, also, like Jack Newfield, the journalist, was oh, a good really? friend. Oh, a big admirer of him. Really? Yeah, yeah I, mean, I grew so, up reading him in the Village Voice and yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, so he was a good friend. Really? Uh, wow. Mostly, sir, but me too. And they would have these, Jack would have these, uh, every time a big fight came up, everybody was invited to his house in the village, and uh, and they enjoyed, they were fight fans. I hated it. Really? <laughs> I don't I don't. But like, you, you, you picture fights in your in your uh, painting. That doesn't mean I love them, cause, mm-hmm. just because, like, I, I might do... Um, a Toreador's, but that doesn't mean I, I, I can't, okay. I, I want to see a bull killed or I want someone to fall, but I'm interested in the activity in another way. You know, how does it look? Can I use it in a, in a picture? And, and where would I place it? Whatever. So it doesn't mean I, I, I love it. I, was, I did professional wrestling for a while. Mm-hmm. I didn't love it. I hated it, but it was interesting. Drexler was a successful novelist and playwright as well, winning Obie Awards for stage work, and she also wrote the novelization for Rocky based on Sylvester Stallone's screenplay. She drew from her time as a professional wrestler for her novel To Smithereens and reimagined Gregor Samsa from Friends Kafka's Metamorphosis into a play, playing between media and life through her artistic career. She described the interconnectedness and serendipity of her work across forms. It yeah. seems like you're 
career has been so interwoven with, you know, art and writing and performance and, you know, all your different activities. And I didn't, I don't want to neglect anything that you might want to talk it's, about. It's the same mind, the, the humor, the, uh, and uh, the intensity. Uh, once I get into a project, the, just the actual enjoyment of doing the thing, uh, See, and, and many opportunities opened up for me and that, that I, I accepted. It was like a, a charmed creative, uh, like I, I have not received like some bad uh, uh, rejections. Hmm. You know, like my first book, it was very interesting. A friend of ours, uh, William Klein, the... Oh, yeah, the photographer. Yeah, yeah. He's not French. He just went over there and stayed there. But he's from the Upper West Side, uh, New York. So a friend of ours, and uh, he had another friend who wanted to go into publishing. And, uh, and he showed him just, uh, all I had was a paragraph or two, and this guy said, I want to publish you. I said, okay. He said, I'll be back in two years and uh, get me a book. And I said, mm, okay. He came back in two years. He's a guy, and he had published Unsafe at Any Speed with Nader. Right. And, and he said, well, where, where's my book? He said, I'll give you a contract. Okay. I said, okay. I said, but you do know that I've never written a novel or, you know, any extended. I've written some articles. He said, well, well you will. And so I had this contract. And the guy was serious. And I said to myself, okay, you're a great reader. Now, now you have to write. <laughs> So um, I said, what, what is the most important thing uh, in writing? I think honesty, humor, and invention. And memory, of course. Because mm. our first books more or less have some biographical content in them, you know. So I did this. I found a way to amuse myself in the writing so that I enjoyed it, and, and I laughed at it, and I found it honest. Anyway, the, the suggestion, if one wanted to make the extension, is that, you know, that, that, that you're not hiding anything, that you're, you're, you know, everything that's there that one wants to, to know is right there to be seen. Does that unless, seem correct? Unless there's more that people can't get to. I don't, no, the surface is always connected to the, the underground anyway. The surface is, unless it's a turf grass, but, you know, it, some golf course, the fake. Maybe there is no such thing as what you're saying, as just the surface. Mm. You know, it, it, the idea of surface comes to you. Where does it come from? It comes from an idea. And where is that idea anchored from? Something you can say is just on the surface, but then somebody says, well, this gives me ideas about what this means. Elaine Sturdivant was born in 1924 in Lakewood, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland. Sturdivant, as she was professionally known, made her mark in New York through inexact repetitions of other artists' work, transmogrifying the art world as it bloomed around her. She courted controversy through her practice, as many artists and critics were incensed by the replicas. 
but Sturdivant carried on. In the 1960s, she began with replicas of works by Frank Stella, Robert Rauschenberg, Jasper Johns, James Rosenquist, and others. She worked from memory after seeing exhibitions, and she achieved notoriety with her series Warhol Flowers, silk screens that she created after Andy Warhol gifted one of his famed flowers prints, a series that were themselves based on other artists' photographs. While questions of originality brewed around her work, Sturdivant insisted on the intellectual and perceptual aims of her practice. She elaborated on those foundations in her 2007 oral history with Bruce Hainsley and Michael Lobel. A lot of people ask questions about how much you involved the artists early on. Not at all. Absolutely not at all. The only person, the only person I ever asked, which was under the Paul Mance, was Kiefer, because I was doing the Kiefer Jason playing, which is very big and very expensive to do. And I, Paul was very afraid he'd freak out and get the work destroyed because he's a big figure in Germany and he'd have no problem doing that. So he insisted that I go talk to, to Kiefer. And I didn't tell him what I was going to do, but I met him and said I was thinking about it. And then he said, of course you can do it. And then, and then Paul and Goethe Reis both said, he doesn't think you're going to do it. That's the only way you're going to be able to do it. This is the only reason he said you could do it. But he was very generous because when I finished, he said, I would think that was my, my work, except for the nose of the plane, the very end nose. And I did that at least 12 times. I could never quite get it, so I left to obey. But so he was generous about it because that man is very... You know, so that was very, that must have taken a lot of guts to say, okay, that's good. I, he said, I would have thought it was mine. But you did talk to Andy about, at least for the flowers. No, but that's a very interesting question because there's this girl in Germany who was writing her PhD, okay? Mm -hmm. No, no, it's another girl, another girl. Um, she's already has her PhD or something. She does this work, okay? So I, she's into um, that terrible area of copy and law, mm, copyright, copyright and law. Yeah. And these people are just so rigid that you're wasting your time to talk to them. So normally I would not have met with her if I had not. She did not reveal that that was her area. And then I was, I was also very sick. I'd just come from the doctor and it's full of medicine. So I said, I really can't do this interview with you, but I'll give you 15 minutes. This interview, this 15-minute interview was so interesting because if I did not give her the answer she wanted, she'd move to an, an area that insisted in a different way that this is what I did. It was in incredible. So she kept saying uh, things like, um, she would not, she kept saying, but you must have had the artist's permission. And then I, you know, initially, you know, I explained that she put it a different way and a different way, and she kept saying, well, you Andy Warhol, he must have known what you were doing. And do you know that I don't actually remember? My premise is that I think Andy knew what I was doing. And I just said, I want your melon or the flower initially. And he said, sure, you know. But I didn't say I was going to do it, and I didn't say what I was doing.
So the other thing is that uh, after all this time, and I've written so many papers, and I know what I'm talking about, you know, and everyone calls it, it's, it's decreased very much. The idea that people would call it copy when they know absolutely nothing about copy. How can you say it's copy if you don't know anything about copy? Because one of the dynamics of copy is that it has to have interior resemblance. And this is one of the factors of repetition. And you don't know that. And if you don't know that, you know. So this, so it's very short, but then it gave, and it's true, they don't know what copy is. But they insist on calling it copy. And so that's a closing of the mind. Oh, you know the great subway in New York where it says, watch out for the closing doors? <laughs> I want to record that. Maybe I can get somebody to do it while I'm here. I want to... For the beginning of a lecture, I want to say, watch out for the closing mind. <laughs> It'd be great, wouldn't it, for an opening of the lecture? But yes. I'm always reminded of this, that you, you're intensely engaged with thinking, but philosophical discourse. We were talking about Spinoza and Foucault. I'm just curious for myself, for instance, these your philosophical, theoretical, conceptual, whatever you want to call it, engagement with these issues, let's say copy, just to begin, where did that come from? Well, because that's, that's you know, that goes way back, copy. To what? Oh, it goes back to the Greeks, probably even beyond that, you know? So there's a, there's a, this very established thing about copy. Copy was not all demeaned. Copy was, at some point, in a very high level. And, um, yes, that would be the beginning but copy then, however, I don't know, you know, it's about uh, copies and anything you copy. So people, people are not involved with the diet. Firstly, copy doesn't have any dynamics, okay? So it's number one. But how did you come to this? I mean, here you were, was it, did it come out of your particular reading? Did it come out of your engagement with art at that time, a combination of the two? Well, it's a very long time I'm thinking. See, for instance, when I'm doing those drawings, I'm figuring it out. Because I had not, firstly, it was, it was terribly, terribly frightening. Not because you're going to do the work, but that, that concept, which is so simple, would really, really work. I mean, you have to, you know, you step back and you say, no way. So it, this, is, this is long-term thinking, okay? And then I realized, of course, it absolutely did work. And of course, that, that's what helped me to fight all that nonsense that I encountered. Because actually someone, I guess last year, said, how did you hold up under all that abuse and all that hostility? It's because I knew what I was doing. So this one guy, though, he kept saying, yes, yes, but what else? And I said, have you ever, never met a strong, sexy woman? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I see your work as really being this intense gaze of what changes from abstract expressionism, particularly through the filter or the conversation of Johns and Rauschenberg, and then pop arriving. Yeah. And that your work is the best philosophy of what that shift mm -hmm. is about, and that the work has continued to go on to bigger shifts, but then that was a major turn that we're still theorizing and that I see so much of your work because of 
how it activates itself, yes. looking like something else, being the meditation that the work was many, many years in receiving, and you were doing it in the moment. Other than when people confronted me after the Being Kinney show, and they'd be so insistent, and of course it went both ways. One way that, it, you know, it was disgraceful, it was copy, it was the market, and so forth. So I could answer that very well. So that only made it worse. If you could really respond to these people in, with very valid answers and position, it just made it worse, because they wanted it to be copy, you know? If, if I had not been brought, surrounded by pop and by abstract expressionism, I would not have been able to conceive this philosophical concept. Sturdivant's first exhibition was at the Bianchini Gallery in New York in 1965, and it featured repetitions of Andy Warhol's silkscreen prints, Frank Stella's abstract paintings, and Klaus Oldenburg's store installation of plaster replicas. Through the rest of the decade, she found new interlocutors for her omnivorous practice, especially the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze, whose groundbreaking book, Repetition and Difference, came out in 1968. I mean, art and art history are based on discussions around imitation and resemblance, right, and copy. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, in terms of what Bruce is asking you about, were you also reading certain philosophical texts at the time? No, not really. No, that you know what came out? The, the reason I found, um, see, I can't remember how many years, and no matter what I said, it just somehow didn't work, you know, and, and then I kept thinking a critic would come along and could write about it. So then, because my ground basically was Nietzsche and, and Spinoza, and not not. Not Spinoza. I read Spinoza, but he was certainly <laughs> translatable as far as I was concerned. But uh, let's see, Nietzsche and then Hegel and Kant, people like that. So, um, but when I had to start uh, writing, when no one came forth, then I started reading uh, Foucault and Deleuze and found the answers there. I mean, they're perfect support for my work. So, but that is not why I was reading them. It's, I read them and then found that they provided a ground for me to work on to talk about it. Were you reading Nietzsche and Hegel, etc., and Kant prior to this time? I mean, oh, way before, sure. Like by the 50s? Oh, I wasn't reading Nietzsche in the 50s. I may, I may go back to him once in a while. Frankly, I don't think I was reading. I think I was really trying to work it through up here, you know, in the head. No, no, no. I'm talking about... I don't think I, I don't know what I was reading. Probably trashy novels. <laughs> yeah, well, I read, I, you know, I read Road Grier as I, when we used to go to pizza for the summers, and I took a dictionary in his book and read it, which is not a good way to read a book. <laughs> or this is like I read Deleuze, Repetition, and um, what is it? Difference. Uh, difference? Yeah. And so I couldn't find it. It hadn't been translated yet. So I took the French and, you know, I spent a summer reading it. So then, the, then the English came out and I said, whoa, this is a whole different book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Bruce was talking about this hinge between abstract expressionism and pop and or abstract expressionism and Johnson Rauschenberg. Do you, since we're having a conversation here on the record, <laughs> Elaine, 
Do yes, you, you think you, you're going to trap me, don't you? <laughs> there are no traps here. Do, do you want to say anything about the type of art that you were making prior to the Bianchini period and prior to those drawings that we've been talking about? Uh, first, let's talk about abstract expressionism, okay? because that was the first step to the surface, to the outside, because it was all about emotion. Okay. And then pop was also the outside. So that, of course, is a very big trigger in terms of thinking. Is art, is art all exterior now? Is art is, you know, blah, 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 blah. That, that triggered thinking. And you can still ask that today, okay, because it's, it progressed very rapidly. And that show I did at uh, Hans Meyer, I don't know when, called um, Powerful Reversals. Powerful Reversals was about that. Yeah, it was about how very dramatically art had made this, and it was, it was precedent by other examples, had made this very sharp turn. At the heart of Sturdivant's practice was the matter of perceiving and making art objects as complex temporal and embodied experiences. While appropriation was a significant artistic method of the period, Sturdivant was adamant that her practice was grounded in the human thought sparked by reception and perception, rather than the end of originality. Resonating with Deleuze, she emphasized her repetition as a mode of active synthesis, arguing that replicas make transformation visible as they break free from habitual ways of seeing. Oh boy, it's supposed to trigger thinking, not craziness. <laughs> yes, no, no. But you see, there's something, there are a lot of factors here, one of which people are very resistant to change. And that's a very heavy-duty thing to try and move. So I think that's one of the strongest forces that keeps it into this, locked into this persistent idea. And, and secondly, if there are no frames of reference, it's hard to get hold of. And at that time that I was doing it, and for many years afterwards, there was no, there was no reference. So that's which we've talked about, where the appropriationists were so important for me because it gave a frame of reference and you could give negative description. And that was very crucial and very great. Which I must tell you, in the um, Palais Tokyo, uh, in the Pereno show, so they have um, um, four of my very large black stellos because the director said that uh, I was one of the people that influenced him. So then later I said, are you sure about that? Because I don't think I did. <laughs> Anyway, so it's in a it's in um it's in a room with Warhol on one wall, Stella on one wall, and me on the third wall. Wow. So it's the first time I've ever been placed wow. with icons, okay? Mm -hmm. it's, so it's very strong. Outside I went to the show with Udo Kitterman who came to Paris, okay? So I was just next to the, the entrance they have this big wall writing, okay? I never read these things. So Udo caught up with me and said, Elaine, go back there and read that. So it says about Warhol, and it says about Stella, and then it says Sturdivant, who is a reappropriationist. That's incredible. That is so remarkable. I love it. I just absolutely love it. Imagine you've gone from precursor to, to someone who is, in, is now redoing appropriation. Can you believe that? And can, can I just clarify, when you say that's incredible, you're not happy about that. 
Oh, I, no, no, I think it's incredible because um, you're always talking about what the phenomena are that is uh, going around uh, you and how people place things. So, I mean, why? If I influence this guy, you say, Sturdivant, you know, blah, 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 blah. You don't have to say reappropriation. <laughs> and then, of course, the student is there taking notes on my paintings, and then she's outside. So uh, she's, she's going to think about me as someone who, and then it says the date of the paintings, 1989 and 90, when, when I did the Black Stellas. So she's going to say, Sturdivant is someone who did, Redid, not redid, someone who did um, the appropriation years after they started. I mean, God, this, this is incredible in terms of how they place you. That's the whole point of the work is to trigger thinking. So, and, and if it brings up questions, then you have to try to seek to find uh, an answer. Yeah, no, I find it quite remarkable. But isn't it also, I mean, it's a question of language, but it also seems to me, especially when you, a term like reappropriationist, which is just, I don't, first of all, I don't exactly, I mean, I know what that means, but on some level, it's like, I, wow, I don't know what that means. It doesn't but, mean anything. Yeah, exactly. I often think that you are more closely connected, or at least there's a very strong connection between you and, for lack of a better term, conceptual art, in this emphasis on language and thinking. I would totally disagree with that. The presentation is so different. And so because the present, well, the base is so different. It's a totally different area of thought and thinking. And then, of course, um, at some point, I was, you know, it was very interesting because I had to really go a little crazy to get the point across. And it's, I guess, in a lecture in Berlin, and someone said, well, you're a conceptual artist, and they became very determined about it. And I said, are you talking about conceptualist thinking, or are you identifying as conceptual artist? And he said, yes, you're a conceptual artist. This is totally 100% wrong. I have nothing to do with the conceptual artist. Yeah, their, their emphasis on language is totally different. Where they want to go is different. They never wanted to make objects. I mean, the premise was not to make objects, even though they made objects. So basically, I said to this guy, I make tons and tons and tons of objects. <laughs> I cannot be conceptual. So, but it was, and then it would be written in many critiques that I was a conceptual artist, but not about thinking. They're talking about as a conceptual artist. I don't know. Th these kind of confusions, I have no idea <laughs> what kind of brain work is going on. <laughs> you know, this is called major confusion. <laughs> So that's trying to trigger thinking again. So it's always trying to make the work function at a very high level, at a higher level, or to articulate, which is interesting because now the videos that I'm doing are really about articulation of visibility very strongly. See? So it's a continuation in a different way. And, and when you say articulation of visibility... So you're trying to get so that the visibilities become thought or can be um, representative of thought, okay? Yeah, they articulate visibility, yeah. Looking, seeing, but seeing, okay, not, so then seeing becomes thought. Which is so, <laughs> which is really interesting and again important to me and something that I wanted to write about, and I, I mentioned very briefly in that Parquet piece, that a lot of people 
because of this idea of appropriation, a lot of people would claim that your work is totally what Duchamp would call anti-retinal, that it's not interested, that it's not visual at all. And I think, I personally think that's a misreading of your work. That's a very big misreading because if you take it from the very first works, uh, you know, then, I mean, you can just trace it all the way through to, to the present and it is very definitely, but retinal is to see, not seeing or vice versa. It's not, it's not visibility. It's about visible, which is very different. So that show that I did at Ropec called Interior Exterior Visibilities is, is, is which I, you did not actually see the photos because it was all photographic. What you saw was projection of the photos. So that's trying to remove scene, okay? So yeah, no, that, and I think when he's talking about retinal or any of those people are talking about retinal, they're just talking about looking at. No, 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 because I, I don't. I don't think trying. No, I don't think that was based on copy at all. This was called, This was based on, on, on the dynamics of repetition, which is you know nothing to do with copy, and um, so repetition. You know, like I guess you have to. Repetition is displacement. Repetition is uh, difference. Repetition is, um, what else is repetition? Repetition is pushing the limits of resemblance and limitate and, and um, um, repetition is, it has several other factors that are the dynamics. So it's not like, it's not like the same, oh, you repeat. See, the interesting thing is, for instance, uh, Andy Warhol repeated, but he did not do repetition. And, the, and his brilliance really lies in the fact that he was, because repeat is surface. You're just talking about the surface. He managed to take repeat and make it into a very, very dynamic thing. So, I mean, that's, that's, for me, that's where his brilliance lies. But, it, but repetition has nothing to do with repeating. So I think that's a, a, a basic um, premise that people do not, you know, but I'd like to get off this copy, this copy nonsense, you know, if we could, because um, it, it's it's for me that's really a finished subject, and I don't care whether they think it's copy or not. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman at the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang, and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble, with Harlan Parker conducting. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. If you enjoy Articulated, please consider rating and sharing it. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.